When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's up, everyone? Dr. Z, welcome to the Z-Dog MD Show. Today, I have returning to the studio Dr. Vinay Prasad. He is a hematologist, oncologist, professor at UCSF, my alma mater. We talked hella smack last time. We're gonna talk hella smack this time about COVID, science, Twitter, you name it. I don't know what's gonna happen. I just invited him down and he agreed to show up and I just need to see another human's face-to-face. Vinay, welcome back, man. Z-Dog, it's a pleasure to be here. Dude. Yeah, dude, your your podcast plenary session, by the way, um, we're gonna record a thing for your thing. That's after right. This. Hopefully, we're gonna do an exclusive Z Dog interview. That's right, yeah. everybody. You got and that, and hopefully that uh, brings new eyes to your podcast. The oh, reason yeah. I love your podcast is you don't. You are always authentic. You're not afraid. You say, you know what, this is the deal. Like these drugs don't work. This is the bias in medicine. This is what's going on with money in the cancer space. Uh-huh. I, mean, how, I mean, how did you even start doing that? Well, I, I'd say, don't get me wrong, I'm also afraid to talk about many things. <laughs> I'm also afraid, uh, but- uh, You will be. <laughs> yeah, I will exactly, be someday. Yeah. Um, you know, we're all one tweet away from end of career. Oh, uh, yeah, cancellation, right. yeah, of yeah. course. But um, I, I guess I would say, um, you know, I got interested in medicine, I got interested in health policy really early in my career, probably when I was a f- intern, fourth year uh, medical student. Um, I, it was just like many people, you know, I started seeing things in the clinical side that rubbed me the wrong way, didn't make a lot of sense. And so I started digging and, you know, when you're a doctor and you want to understand why the hospital works the way it does, I promise you one thing, the moment you understand how money is flowing through the system, people will start to make a lot more sense. Uh, So why aren't we paying for this? Why are we doing it this way? The moment you start to figure out where the dollar bills go, you'll make sense of that. So that's kind of what got me interested in health policy. Yeah, and you know, nothing has changed. That's exactly how it is. That's how it is. Man, so by the way, speaking of money, how painful was that debate last Uh, night? It was atrocious. I mean, it was painful from the point of view of someone who wants to watch people to get a sense of what they think and what they will do. If that was your goal to learn information. Fail. Fail, total fail. Yeah. Um, if your goal was to see how people want to posture themselves and present themselves to the electorate, well, then you might be sated by that uh, that di- well, not dialogue, monologue, yeah. really. Yeah, yeah. a monologue. <laughs> it was, you know, it made me think at some point, I just said, you know, this is, these are our choices, mm-hmm. you know, just terrible and terrible in a form that may, that should never have happened with a moderator that was, you know, like, oh, well, guys, guys, I mean, wh- what's even the point? And the thing is, this is what our discourse, it, it, it felt, you know what it felt like? It felt like watching live action Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> and to a large degree it was. Yeah. But I guess I would pose, I, I, I would put the choices as, as terrible and someone who I think is a, a pretty decent person. But that, 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 that's just me. I mean, I think he's a, a decent person, will do a decent yeah. job. But I mean, I guess, I think you're asking a good question, which is, Um, even in the best of circumstances, a debate is theater. Um, It's always been theater. For somebody who really wants to know what will, let's say we had two traditional politicians who actually don't step on each other's words and let people talk. Um, Even in those circumstances, in 90 minutes to get a sense of what someone's gonna do for broad policy for a nation, I think it's an untenable thing. You reduce complex policy decisions to just catchphrases that have been scripted and and poll tested to connect with people. Um, It's always been disconnected. And the truth about policy is I think political leaders really just kind of point the ship where, where we're gonna go. Mm. And then actual policy is a series of compromises. What can you achieve? What you wish you achieved? If you drive things in that direction too quickly, you'll actually create a backlash. So you have to move the ship of a huge multi-trillion dollar economy rather judiciously. And so I think for many people, we confuse the destination with how to get there. Mm. And that's one of the greatest problems I think with politics. Yeah, and you know what? I think that's where we get into healthcare because yeah. that was brought up in the political spectrum. You know, it, it, it's Trump accusing Biden of being a single payerist, Biden accusing Trump of having done absolutely nothing. And <laughs> yeah. this whole idea that it's this polarity, like you're either a single payer socialist or you're a do nothing, <clears throat> let the system continue to rampage you know, through America, which by the way, is not a sustainable thing. Neither, neither one may be sustainable. I mean, what are your thoughts on this? Because I, I have a lot of feelings about, again, destination and 
path. Yes. So <laughs> we all agree, I think, I, I, I'm trying to find an American who thinks there shouldn't be universal coverage. Yeah, I think there are few. There are, there are a few, and they're the ones that are more the dark. They have a lot of money in them. They have a lot of money. You know what? Poor, like a, poor people who can't afford yeah, healthcare should die. That's evolution. I think there's okay. some people who do hold that view, perhaps, unfortunately. Um, but I think you're right that a lot of us, the majority of us in poll after poll, believe that people should have access to care they can afford, care that's reliable, that provides what we need, um, because we believe that medical care is different than other commodities. It's a commodity that we all ought to get together and make sure everyone has. It's a human right, many people believe. I believe that, and I'm, on the, I'm on the strongly on the political left. But what I think the excess of the political left is, is to wed themselves so tightly to a single way of getting it done, which would be a single payer system or you know, beyond single payer even, there's, a, there's something even more left than that, which is actually the government owns the apparatus of healthcare, a truly socialized- Like England. Like yeah. England, truly nationalistic system. And I guess I would say that once you decide on the destination, we want everyone to get access to healthcare, it to be affordable, it to be fair, it to be um, free of racial and, and socioeconomic bias. Then the policy question is, what gets you there? Mm. What gets you there in a way that doesn't prevent a back? What gets you where that? I have to delete this. <laughs> what, what gets you there in a way that prevents a backlash? That's sustainable. Um, and, and I'll just point out one thing that I think people may miss, which is that no matter what healthcare system you have, there's always going to be some people who are not satisfied because the one thing in this life we're not guaranteed is to live forever. We all are going to die. We're all going to get sick, and. People who get sick, some fraction of them is not gonna be satisfied with the care because they're gonna keep getting sick. You and I both know that, we're doctors. There's some patients, there's some people, there's nothing we can do to change the, the course of that ship. That's just biology. And when you have that in a system, people will attribute those bad symptoms to the institution that is keeping them in that path. So if there's a single payer system, there's only one person to blame. Yeah. So one of the beauties of a public option and private systems is they may all be not perfect, but you can keep switching, yeah. which will satisfy you in a certain level. So I think one of the things that people on the strong left mistake is that some of these things that sound like a perfect policy solution, Medicare for all, for instance, it may lead to unintended backlashes that you don't anticipate, which is a fraction of people will be deeply discontent and they will have no other place to switch to. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's something you want to avoid. So that's why I think like if, if you're a politician, the politician should run on the platform of what's the destination and a bunch of thoughtful people in thousands of pages should try to craft what's the best way to get there. I don't think it's a really a 30 second soundbite. Yeah, that, and that's it. And I, I think that's been the problem too with uh, our, our discourse around healthcare reform in general, because it's like, it's either this soundbite on CNN or MSNBC or Fox or whatever, or it's uh, a 30 page brief that no one reads from some think tank yeah. that is never gonna get done. What we need is to have the agreement as a society that, hey, what's our goal? We want no Americans to go bankrupt due to medical bills. Let's say that's it. Okay, well then let's craft different solutions yeah. that will give people choice and options to get to that point. One of my big concerns with say a Medicare for all is that are you codifying a broken system? Are you saying I'm gonna pay for procedures and options and things that already we know don't work, but we do them because we get paid. So we gotta start sorting that out. There's care delivery, there's outcomes research, what actually works, there's fixing clinical trials and understanding the biases there, which you've written books about, Malignant and Ending Medical Reversal, or books you've written about this, that, that if you, it'll get you so pissed off that you're realizing, ah, we're, we're paying for stuff that doesn't work, that's hurting people. So all those things have to be on the table. It's yeah. not just black or white. Yeah, you're but, right. And I think part of the problem too, Staying on that, like talking about COVID, you can't have an honest, open, rational discussion where you trust the other person because all you're seeing are these sound bites on TV where yeah. it's so politicized. Well, first, I just I just want to pick up on something you said that I think is is super important to restate, which is that all of us who believe that universal healthcare is something beyond traditional commodities, those of us who go so far as to say it's a right, and I'll put myself in that camp, that it is a right, a human right, the right to healthcare is a right to healthcare that actually works. The healthcare that costs a lot of money, that doesn't make people better off, that's profit seeking by, by for-profit interests, by shareholders. What we have in healthcare as we consider it is a mix of both things. We've got a lot of things that are transformational. Somebody comes in with acute heart attack, ST elevation MI, you, you open up that artery. We're talking double digit mortality benefit in like you know a couple days, massive benefit. And then we've got 
devices, surgeries, pills that, that we all know have very weak evidence base or bad evidence base. And one of the problems in this space is if you just pay for everything, you're gonna be paying for a lot of things that really redistribute wealth in a bad way. It takes wealth from everybody and gives it to the hands of a few shareholders. It's a regressive tax and it doesn't, and it's done in the name of health, but it doesn't actually improve people's health. So to your point, which is that we have to do both, which is expand healthcare and reform healthcare. I think it has to be together because the moral justification for universal healthcare is that it's actually helping people. There's no moral justification to pay for devices that don't make people better, that just enriches shareholders. That, that, that is a brilliant point that nobody talks about. That <clears throat> if you, let's say you have a universal cover system where the government is paying some of this. Like, yes. and, and, we, and we actually kind of do, it's we called do. Medicare. <laughs> right, right, we do. So we do. what is Medicare doing? It's taking the commons, our money, yes. and it's redistributing it, hopefully to do social good, which is take care of elders who have illness or people on dialysis, whatever the exemptions are for Medicare. Well. What happens when you're taking the common money and you're giving it to companies and shareholders and for-profit entities that are making money on a product that has been approved based on biased research, that's money-driven, that's generating lots of profits, that is not actually helping people, but the worst part of it is people, patients think it's helping them because they are conditioned by the same companies, whether it's a pharma company doing a direct-to-consumer ad, whether it's their own doctor being conditioned by the pharma, the, the medical device rep that, hey, this thing is actually gonna help people and then they believe it and they're getting paid to do it. So there's a moral conflict there where they, they feel like, well, if I just do this, I'm doing the right thing because I'm also getting paid and that's how humans work. Yes. And, um, People don't talk about that until you fix that. If you throw public money, more public money at it, we've already thrown a ton. I wanted the government pays roughly 50% of healthcare oh, yeah, if you budget. consider VA and TRICARE and, and Medicare. It's, it's a trillion plus in, 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 in federal expenditure on healthcare, a trillion plus per annum. It's a tremendous investment we're making. And I think you've, you've put it so well, which is the, this is a, it's a sector in the marketplace where the person at the end, the consumer, the patient, they're not always in the position to know which of these many services you're giving me, which are the ones that are really helping me, and which are the ones that are just kind of writing, writing what the other ones are doing. They don't know. And the other thing is some of the doctors giving them um, are well-intentioned and very smart, but they may not have the very rigorous training it sometimes takes to separate these two. And all of the for-profit entities want you to think that everything they're selling is is the magic bean. You know, they think everything is magical. Um, my product is good, that product's good, they're both good products. One product actually works, one doesn't. Who, you know, that's a distinction lost on people. Um, and, and, and what you create is a system where you can give a tax cut to billionaires or you can take money from everybody and give it to a bunch of for-profit companies that make a product that doesn't make people live longer, live better. It's essentially the same thing, a regressive distribution of income. And that's something that I think people like me as a progressive, I think we should be cautious about. I think even people on the other end of the political spectrum, they don't wanna tax people to pay for things that don't work. That's not in line with their philosophy either. So it's something that I think we can all agree on, which is we cannot keep funding things that do not make people live longer, live better. We gotta stop paying for this. If you wanna pay for that with your own money, so be it. But we can't tax everyone in the name of health and pay for these things that don't work. And proof that that's happening is just the enormous amount of GDP we spend in this country on healthcare and that we don't get what we ought to get for it. We're spending 20% of GDP on healthcare and our life expectancy is on the way down and we're shorter than other Western industrialized nations. So I think this is the key problem that's so inextricably interlocked with universality. Um, I think a lot of people believe that we should do universal coverage first and then we can reform this problem later. To some degree, I, I do believe that. I think that 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 is a plausible strategy because once we have, once we're investing in healthcare, there'll be more impetus to find these things. But I think you gotta do them together as much as you can. And that's, you know, a big thrust of my work is research in this space, no value, low value practices. That's key. And, and again, I cannot emphasize enough that that is such a crucial part of the discussion that we never had. We you know when they rolled out Obamacare, that was part of the original plan was yeah. uh, uh, outcomes measures and things like that. It's kind of hard to do. Yeah. And it didn't really happen for a variety of reasons. Yeah, some of the reasons the teeth were taken out of the bill. So we can have a, a, a PCORI, we can have an AHRQ, can have these institutes that are tasked with doing comparative effectiveness, see which pill is better. Uh, but they can never do any studies if the only thing that separates the two pills is cost. Oh, that's kind of a- Kind of the point. Kind of the point, <laughs> yeah. It's kind of the point. We wanna know if the cheaper thing works just as well as the expensive thing. Um, and then the other thing that has to be stated is there's such an imbalance in the, in the lobbying space. 
all the people who are profiting from these things that don't work, they have lots of money on hand, and they can pay for lobbyists to go and push Congress to do things that keep their monies coming in. All The people on the other side who are hurt, they're all of us are hurt to a very small degree. We don't get together. We don't think about this. We often are blind to it. We don't have the collective ability to lobby equally on the other side. So it's a fundamental imbalance in lobbying. And so these systems that concentrate wealth um, in this way by offering service that has no value, it tends to perpetuate itself. It tends to drive itself and fuel itself. Yeah. And you know what's interesting is, see, you're a progressive. I'm a moderate. These are the common ideas that progressives, moderates, and conservatives can share. I agree. The idea that you don't throw good money after bad and you don't you don't waste money on things that don't work. You can argue about different techniques to get, but I think we all kind of have a similar goal. Like you said, there's a subfraction of people who think sick people should just die who are poor, but that's let's all agree that that's a tiny subfraction. Most of us want a society where we're doing the right thing. You talk about healthcare as a right. I talk about it often as um as it's not even the right question to ask, is it a right or a privilege or a whatever? It's a question of what kind of society do we wanna be? So do we want a society where people go bankrupt and die because they don't have money? Or do we wanna be a society where we have enough smartness, the right things that we do, wealth, that we can actually prevent that from happening for everybody? And I wanna be in that society, you know? And then I don't care whether it's a right or a privilege and the ethics of it, it's more, hey, we live in a pretty good place. I think a lot of Europeans feel that way, but they're not perfect, right? They're they're wasting money on a ton of stuff. Their costs are going up. There's political infighting. So, you know, know, to some degree, the labels that we use to identify our camps, maybe these (laughs) labels would be actually um, in need of revision. Yeah. I mean, for those of us, I mean, more than any sort of label, the label you put apply to me is I'm 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 an empiricist, I'm data-driven. Yeah. If you, no matter what I believe, if you show me good data that what I believe is wrong, I will, denounce my belief on the spot. On the spot. On the spot. There's no belief I cling to more than the ability to be persuaded by data. I am a data analyst. I think about how data is misused and used. That's the religion I subscribe to above all else is the the proper use of data. Um, To some degree, some of the political positions we find ourselves in are people who believe that this will work in the absence of data. Um, and, and so I want to say that I'm willing to, you know, when you call myself a prog- when I call myself a progressive, that's because I think much of the data supports some of the ideas of the progressive platform. I think I generally am in line with the direction they want to go to provide these services, to handle these problems. And also I think progressivists, um, they don't take things off the table. Prima facie, we're not going to say, well, governments can't do this and these institutions can't do that. We're going to say, I'm willing to consider anyone doing anything in this space if it actually works to solve the problem. Uh, That's why I put myself in that bucket. Mm -hmm. But perhaps uh, I'm not truly in that bucket because I don't believe in these solutions more than I believe in the evidence. If the the evidence goes the other way um, and some of these solutions don't accomplish the stated goals of improving population health and lowering um, GDP spending on healthcare, um, I'm not gonna support it. Um, So so I put myself in a different bucket and that's why I'm not a politician, I'm an academic. Exactly. And that and that that see so this is and this is why you're on my show because I, I have a group of people that I trust to care about the data yeah. who would change their mind in an instant. You know, Offit's one of these guys, Paul Offit. He's just like, well, I like okay, him. I know I was wrong about this. Yeah. This is the thing, and and uh, uh, that I think is so important. And then you know, it's funny because before the show we were talking, we were looking at a Fauci clip from March yeah. on Twitter where he was talking about masks, and he was saying on sixty Minutes, he said, "Listen, I don't think masks are useful for the public right now in America. You know, maybe it draws." protects a droplet, but people are touching their face and all of this, which is which is what I was saying at that time too. And then now there's a 180. Now the way the public sees that is, that's chaos. Yes. Like these guys don't know what they're talking yes. about. I mean, how do you interpret this thing? That's a good question. I mean- As I guess, an empiricist. As an yeah. empiricist, I guess I would say that first, um, I have a lot of respect for Tony Fauci, who I crossed paths with a couple of times when I was working at the NIH. Um, and What a gunner. God, and I, when, you know, the back at the Institute, uh, me and the boy. <laughs> well, you know, when I worked at the NIH, it wasn't the true heydays of the NIH. It was, it was, it was not the way it was, I think, in the 60s and 70s, oh, where it really was the pinnacle. Yeah. Um, but nonetheless, it was still a great place. Um, but Tony Fauci, uh, I think, is a good person. He's a public servant. He's been doing it a long time. Um, I do think that we can, no matter where you fall on this issue, you, we have to admit that there was sort of public bungling of the communication around this issue. Yeah. Um, the reason we looked at that clip was that it's abundantly clear that that clip and then a clip from maybe six weeks later 
the, the, the language used about masks is a true 180. And the data did not change as fast as the language. I think no matter, even people who believe that there's been new data, yeah. um, it didn't change that fast and not that dramatically. And what do I think? So what do I think? I'm not the expert on public communication. There's a philosophical question I have, which is in the interest of getting people to do what you want, can you embellish your hand? As a data person, as a scientist, I believe the answer is never. I will never embellish what I, what I say in an effort to get you to change your behavior. I respect everyone too much to do that. And I respect myself too much to ever capitulate on that front. I don't know if everyone in politics feels the same way. I think some people may disagree and they say, you may have to upplay your hand now about what the data shows. And you may have to downplay the hand earlier to get people not to take them away from healthcare workers. That's their logic. I believe we would have been in a better place if at every point in time, we inserted all the appropriate nuance and caveats. We say, we want you to do this. We didn't want you to do it before for these reasons. We want you to do it now. And you know, there's still some ambiguity here. Um, the, the other truth of it is, there are some nations in this world that are doing cluster randomized control trials of masks. There's a study being done in, in, in Denmark. Yeah. Um, we will learn more information. We could have done a little bit more of that on this front. We could have answered a few more questions, not just around masks, but other non-pharmacologic determinants of spread, such as availability of hand sanitizer, plexiglass partitions, masks, face shields, and they can all be done in sort of a factorial design where you randomize people to some parts of this and not others and see which parts of this giant apparatus have the proportionate benefit. You know, I'm reminded of something that some pandemic experts tell me, uh, which is, this won't be the only pandemic. Yeah, We got to use this as an opportunity to learn for the next pandemic. And in some ways we miss that opportunity to learn. So going back to your point, I guess I would say that I I'm so committed to data that I believe every time there is uncertainty, it is an opportunity to run a study, to decide who's right or wrong. And what I fear is that in an effort to get people to do what you want them to do, we overplay our hand. And that will one day, perhaps it's already started to, uh, bite us in the bite us in the ass. I, I think you and Monica Gandhi, who was on the show recently, yeah. is coming back. Agree, she's in my cabal of people that I think are empiricists and care deeply about human suffering and want to alleviate it by actually understanding it. And uh, you know, we were talking about that. The public health should it should have been give treat people as grownups. Tell them what you know and don't know, and let them make the decisions. Like, would you agree with a national mask mandate? I guess, I mean, I guess I would say that, I, I would say if you wanted people to do it, then I think the question would be, what's the best way to do it? Mm. And I guess the first question I would have is, and I don't know the answers here, so mm. this is why I'm, I'm gonna talk you through my reasoning, and yeah. I'm not gonna be able to answer the question, but one of the things I would say is, um, in this pr particular moment in time, I worry that mandating anything, like mandate, put that label on it, like you gotta do this, I worry it's gonna backfire on a lot of people. Yeah, they're gonna be, they're gonna, they're gonna thumb their nose at you just because they don't want anybody telling them what to do. Right. Uh, so that's one question I have. I don't know if that's the most effective way. The other thing might be to, to say we recommend it. The other thing might be to say, you know, we're uncertain and we recommend it. And I think these kind of messaging can be, can be strategized. The next question I have for you is, I'm not sure under what legal framework it could even be authorized at a federal level. You mean, I mean, I just don't know. Constitutionally, how, yeah. Mm -hmm. Constitutionally or within how many of these decisions have to be made at a local level, right. state level or national level. Um, the, the other thing I would, I would offer is whether it be masks or face masks or masks or face shields or, or the availability of hand sanitizer or different strategies at grocery stores. Um, I, I would say insofar as is possible, we gotta think of experiments we can do. Can we randomize counties to different strategies and track changes in viral spread? Um, just to get a sense of which of these things is the key. Yeah. Um, can we randomize counties to different strategies? Like one, it's mandatory. Um, and the other thing about mandates are, what are you gonna do if somebody doesn't do it? Right. So we've all seen the videos of somebody uh, going without a mask yeah. and people have escalated it. Uh, those, that's what makes the videos. Perhaps there are many situations where you know people look the other way, which is I think what a lot of people do in real life. Right. If you escalate it, you have to ask yourself the question, in the process of escalating this, am I going to make it worse? Yeah. If I call in the police and you have to hold somebody down to put cuffs on them, are, is this person potentially armed? Um, is it gonna, are you just putting, you know, is this a pressure cooker about to explode? You have to ask that question. So mandates have to be tied to what are the carrots and what are the sticks? And every part of that, I think, requires empirical data. So, so I guess I would say that, you know. It's complicated. It's complicated, but yeah. I mean, I mean, I, I would say that if you put me in charge of that question, 
uh, it would, I would get you a good answer in about a week and I would assemble a lot of people to answer that question. Right. And this ties to something that, you know, you and I were talking about earlier, which is Twitter absolutism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This idea that we don't always know the answer to even simple things. Um, we have a little humility to say, yeah, I see some pluses to it. I see some downsides. Mm. Maybe there's ways to sort that out. That idea that you could have that humility, that's lost in the world of social media and it makes me scared. It's I will have many more followers if I go and tweet things like, anyone who doesn't wear a mask is an idiot. Yeah, You're killing me. Yeah. Um, some video of, of this person didn't wear a mask and they died. Yeah, that, yeah, that's something yeah. people did. Yeah. Um, similarly, just how absurd would it be if somebody posted a video of this doctor wore a mask all the time and they still got sick and died? We would say, well, that doesn't prove anything. That's just an anecdote. Yeah. And, and, and you know, nobody said masks work 100%. Sim think about it the other way around, right? So what if somebody yeah. showed the anecdote the other way? Yeah. Um, that, that, that scares me that we live in a time where people who are supposed to put the caveats in, who are supposed to say, I'm not 100% sure about a broad sweeping policy change that's never been done in the history of humanity, that those people would rather instead be just damn sure they know the right answer and that everyone who disagrees is a moron or an idiot or wants to kill people. If the world is full of people who agree with me and morons and idiots, that's a bad way to dichotomize the world. Uh, it's, a, it's a way that's not gonna win your friends and you're not gonna win battles. And so I, I really worry about what has happened with social media on this. It, it, and uh, we recently did a video on the social dilemma yeah. the Netflix documentary and, and really so social media has weaponized polarity in a way that it, it rewards it. So you get more followers. Like you said, you would have 10X the followers if you took that polarizing route. And I said that in the video I, and I actually cited some doctors on Twitter that have, um, you know, one of them has half a million followers, uh, rhymes with poo. <laughs> and um, just, just by sowing absolutism, division, whether it's political or medical. And 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 again, if you, if you know, if you're putting in your Twitter handle wear a damn mask, you know, McGee, you're not who are you convincing? I, that's what I wonder. I no. struggle with that. I struggle with it on so many questions which is some of these questions people have dug in. They're in the trench. Yeah. They're fighting on their side. Uh, how are you going to get them out? How are you going to make middle ground? I, I'm, I'm not sure if calling them an idiot or, or insulting them or, or just shouting louder is gonna do it. The other point you make, and you allude to, I think, some of people on Twitter who I, I think many of us who are um, doctors don't have a lot of respect for, um, even though they may put MDs in their title, one of the unifying themes among those people is um, you can gain a lot of followers if you pair medicine with a very strong political stance you're always for or against this president. You're yeah, always yeah, for or yeah. against some political yeah, party. Yeah. You pair those two and you gain all the, the occasional medical followers, but you gain all the political followers. Yeah. And the political animal on Twitter is far bigger than the medical animal. I mean, there's more people. Order of magnitude. Order of magnitude. Yeah. And I think we have to be careful. I mean, I, I'm, I'm somebody who believes that medicine is to some degree ultimately political. This is about what we're doing with human beings, how we value life, value health in those who have less. It's about justice. It's tied to all these things. At the same time, on every issue, you have to approach it with without a preconceived bias, with as fresh eyes as you can, and try to see what things people might be offering that are right or wrong, um, and not always be wedded to some party line. Um, it's important to separate the two. And so somebody can be political on Twitter, Somebody can be too political. I think there is such a distinction to be yeah. made. Yeah, I, I think you're right. Yeah, I think that's what it is. Because po politics, again, is the way humans sort out values yes, around values, data. Yes. So anyway, we, we can be empiricists and look at data and then, okay, so how important is that to us? For example, if you're someone who believes that humans should be Darwinianly uh, competing for resources, well, it doesn't matter what the data says about what's best for the flourishing of human populations, your goal is well, just reward the people who have the most money. That's a value thing. So you can argue those politics and, and say, okay, well, don't, politics is about policy. Well, what policies are we gonna put in place? And that's why you argue. That's why last night's debate was useless. Useless. Had nothing to do with policy, had nothing to do, and you had no idea what these people would actually do in office. And um, so it's a waste, it's political grandstanding. It is, a again, a, a live action Twitter feud where it's just, again, you score points by creating polarity, by insulting, by throwing ad homonyms, by interrupting. And, and, I, and I saw actually both of them do it, although it was asymmetrical. And um, and so in the end, I think what we need to do is look at it and go, okay, how do we start to bring people back? I, I, I have this term, the alt-middle, yes. and it's it's less of a political thing than it's a, it's a, 
it's a, hey, can we have a rational conversation? It doesn't matter what your poly- I, I hate this, and Jordan Peterson uses this term, and just by saying Jordan Peterson, I'm I know you branded to some yeah. kind of alt-right sure. person. Uh, ideological possession is a term that he uses, and he complains that people are, they're ideologically possessed. So in other words, I will always click these boxes because the party that I'm su- purportedly supporting will always click these boxes. I don't think for myself. I don't let data change what I think. No pers- no argument will change what I think. I'm ideologically possessed. And he's like, no, think for yourself. And and I, and I, I 100% agree with that. Yeah, I heard somebody say that if if the views of your friends and your party are, are, are all the views you hold, they're not your views, um, <laughs> yeah. which is true because if you're really thinking for yeah. yourself, you will inevitably disagree with somebody on some fraction of the issues. We can never agree 100%. It's okay not to agree 100%. We can meet where we agree. I think the debate also reflects uh, the continuation of a trend, which is the media has commoditized politics in a dangerous way. If you watch an hour of CNN on COVID, I don't think I learn anything. Anything. I don't think I learn anything. I I learn the same things I knew when I started, a very superficial look at things, people saying things louder, saying somebody did something right or wrong or somebody's bad, somebody's good. I don't learn anything. What has happened? Do people do you actually know anybody in your life who watches an hour of CNN? I know very few people in my life anymore who watches an hour of CNN. People are moving to places like your podcast, other podcasts. People are moving to forums where the host of the forum is willing to talk to somebody for two hours, mm. three hours. I listen to a lot of those podcasts and I learn so much more than I would learn from the snippets. Um, academics always complain that they go on some TV show and they have to get their message in two minutes and then they practice how to deliver it as best they can. I think to some degree we have to rebel against that. Yeah. Some messages are not conveyed in two minutes. They yeah. need more minutes. And so you're either gonna do it justice or you just don't talk about it. Ah, man, abs- absolutely, absolutely. I think the long form needs to come back. You can play it at 2X, man. 2X, man. Or skip through or read the transcript, whatever. Yeah, but whatever. have the long, like those Sam Harris podcasts where he gets someone on and they drill deep into stuff. Those are transformative for your thinking. I mean, my mind was changed. I was introduced to people like John Haidt and these other thinkers that then you go deep in their catalog. Yeah. Yes, I agree. That's how we ought to be. And and the thing is, I think what you said about media commodifying this, it's important because the big corporate media companies make money by scoring the same points that you score on Twitter. Yes. The individual reporters, if you talk to them, and I have, they are heartbroken. They're morally injured yeah. because they want to go deep in the nuance. They don't want a clickbait headline. They and they always like. I'll do an interview with somebody and then I'll see it and I'll be like, "What the kind of fucking headline is that?" Yeah. And, and, and 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 they go, "My editor put that in because he knows it's going to get more clicks. I know it kind of reduces the whole thing to this not true thing." And I'm like, "Yeah, it does. Why is it? Well, they make more money and there's more advertising." I'm like, "Well, there's the problem." And again, you started this whole thing by saying when you were young in medicine, you were saying, hey, if you follow where the money flows, everything starts to make sense. Yeah. And that's what we're seeing in the media. Today. I think that's what we're seeing. And I think the rise of some politicians has been largely driven by the fact that their antics get views, get yeah. clicks in an yeah. ecosystem where media is under pressure to keep and stay relevant. Um, it's a huge disservice. And the ability to talk about, I mean, what would a round table really look like around the healthcare system? I mean, you could assemble a bunch of really good people and we could talk about it for an hour and two hours as to what are the pros and cons of the German model, UK system, um, the Japanese system, the US system. Um, How can we move towards providing universal coverage, um, making sure it's affordable, um, but also the budget standard control. Um, It's a nuanced and complex discussion. It doesn't fall under one slogan to reduce it to, um, you know, Single payer, yeah. or 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 and or that that socialist or Medicare for medical. All. Right. It, 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 it's it does a disservice, and I, I wonder the average person who hears that, um, they they feel as if they're voting with more information, but t- do they really know that much more than if they didn't know the platform at all? Just to know this one slogan, it's either good or bad. I mean, I'm not sure about. I that. I don't think so. And yeah. you know what's interesting is when I talk to just random people in my life, whether let's say it's my contractor yeah. or it's somebody somebody who's like not a scientist, yeah but is not an idiot. Yeah. And they'll tell you, oh, this is my understanding of COVID right now from everything I've seen on the news. And I'll go, okay, well, how about we think about it like this? Have you thought about this and this and this? And over the course of 30 minutes of conversation, their eyes open wide, like, wait, what? <laughs> I never thought of it that way. Mm-hmm. That, that's because no one's had a 30 minute conversation with you about the nuance and the different ideas of this. And we're all in this group think on COVID. Either you're like a pro mask, shut them down catastrophist, or you're a you know denial hoax, yes, open yes. everything up, this thing's a lie. 
And that's not the dichotomy that exists. And, and that's the most poisonous dichotomy is the, what you've articulated. That that dichotomy that you've articulated, I think, is, is true. I observe it in other people. And on top of it, they have taken those, that dichotomy and tied it to political party. Yeah. And that is a poison yeah. because that ties it to identity, to who somebody is. and makes them much less likely to change their opinion on this issue yeah. in a setting of massive uncertainty. And what we're really talking about at the end of the day is there's no perfect choice. There's no perfect answer. Something bad is happening and bad things are gonna happen. And you know, I talk about it on my podcast a little bit. There's an equation we're trying to like solve. And let me just kind of walk you through this equation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In world A, we do X, Y, and Z. And there's a certain number of years of life we are losing. We're gonna lose the years of life from a certain amount of viral spread. Um, we're also gonna have some countervailing effects on if we close schools, what will happen to the kids, their long-term longevity, their socioeconomic status. Um, are there gonna be more teen pregnancies? Is there gonna be more violence? Um, what's gonna happen to society? Are we gonna have loss of understanding of civics? Are we gonna have a disrupted society? Are there any threats to potentially democracy? Um, what does shutdown do for businesses, for small business owners, for upward mobility in society? There are all these pieces of the puzzle. There's no scientist who says, I study all the things that COVID pertains to. There's no such person. It pertains to everything in life. And we have several scenarios. We can do X, Y, Z, or we can do QRS. And we have to think, what will the cumulative life year change be in these worlds? Which path is the path where we lose the least life years? Balancing all these differing things and balancing some things that are not easily translatable to other things. And to answer that question, so basically what I'm trying to say is that it's not an easy question. It is the greatest policy challenge. And what it means is you need to assemble people who have diverse points of view. You need to hear what they say. You need to strive to persuade, to understand, to educate yourself. We all are biased to seeing the to seeing our worldview as the most important. You know, I'm a doctor, so things that happen in the hospital takes on profound importance to me. I may forget what does it really mean when kids stay home for months on end and they're being abused potentially by some older person at their house and there's no system to detect that they don't have food. Um, you know, which is a true problem that we're facing. So. What I, what I want to suggest is these policy polls, they are not helping us. They're preventing us from having a conversation. Um, people are blocking people. You know, yeah. you're on the other side. You're on the other side. Oh, you think schools should be open. You think schools will block, block, block. That's not the way to do it. You, this is a time where we have to have the conversation. You have to listen to things that where people disagree with you. Learn something potentially. Um, take it down a notch. Not everyone who disagrees with you is evil. They're not all bad people wanting to do bad things. Some people, they believe in the same things you believe in. They just think that the path you're on is not gonna achieve those things. You have to allow them to speak and consider their view. I, that was a brilliant rant, dude. That, I, that, that's a, what I've been trying to say less articulately on my show from the beginning, which is we need to listen to all these viewpoints and not shut them down, yeah. but then criticize them when there's mistakes in data analysis. Yes, I think you so. You know, like, you know, you look at those Bakersfield doctors that- Bad be, data. Bad, bad data. Bad data. Maybe, maybe they have really good points. Like there are a lot of points that I sympathize with. The shutting down schools, bad. Quarantining healthy people, a mm, little bit weird. Let's see the data on that. What's going on? You know, and, and there's this, idea that there's also this interesting politicization of it. Like either you love America and you think we're doing everything right, or you're so upset with the current administration that you're like, America's a mess. We're doing, we're the worst in the world at all this stuff. And it's like, well, okay, the truth is probably somewhere in between. And there's a lot that goes into COVID. Like we have this group think on COVID based yes, on our I politics. So. so one of the things I've been thinking about lately is, well, maybe America's having some trouble it, because, and I wanna also get back to something you said, which is, Look at all these factors, like in quality life you're saved in these different scenarios. If you had a supercomputer that was way smarter than sure. us, an advanced general sure. intelligence that could look at this, and Sam Harris has talked about this from a morality standpoint. Sure. If you had a perfect computer that could tell you how much suffering and how much well being right. is generated by every action, you could have a perfect moral code. But unfortunately, we don't have exactly that. right. And the same thing goes with COVID. If you had a perfect computer that could look at, so what do we do? We look at other countries. We see what's happened. We should be studying it prospectively. We're not because we suck. So now we look back and we go, okay, what happened in Sweden? What happened in Japan? How do we interpret that data? Are we cherry picking? What are we doing? So the U.S. Well, we're a slightly older population than say Africa. Let's look at Africa. Nobody's dying in Africa. Sure. I mean, and again, now I'm becoming very black and white. But let's no, say, no, but yeah, very low mortality rate. There in are Africa. countries where the population is younger, and so the death rate are younger. They're yeah. younger, yeah. there's a different culture. Maybe they're packed in, they have more coronavirus exposure at baseline, they have more T-cell immunity. We don't know, but we know there's differences. Yes. So America's uniquely fat, chronic diseased, a little bit older, 
late to the party in terms of closing borders and stuff. Yes. So the, the, it's already widespread. Yes, yes. So this is what happens. And the question is how much hubris do we have on how much we can control and how much is just nature doing its thing and we need to understand how to mitigate harm. Yes, and and let me, so you've done a great job of articulating, I think, one just domain of concerns, which is how might the biology of the virus be different in different places? Now let me talk about the next domain, which is how might policy responses be different in different places based on the types of people who live there? So we're in a country that's deeply politically divided where there's some people distrustful of central government, distrustful of government altogether. The same policy solution that may work in a country where where people have strong faith in the government may not work in a country where people question the government or are divided by the government. Yeah. And then the other piece of it that's hard to articulate is we all approach this with our unique experiences and biases. Um, people who do theoretical science, um, the world often uh, fits the models quite well. It looks really good in certain types of theoretical science. And I don't want to cast a broad aspersions. I think theoretical science is super valuable and super fascinating. It has an important role even in this moment. Those of us who do um, clinical medicine, those of us who do field public health work, and I've talked to some people who will be coming on my podcast soon, field public health work in clinical medicine, we know that when the rubber meets the road, the best laid plans of mice and men off go astray. That there are things that sound good, they make a lot of sense, but you try to implement that on the ground mm. in the middle of a problematic situation, not even COVID-19, but a different sort of outbreak situation, they know that it's not always easy. Field work in public health is a fraught thing. You are limited by serious constraints, financial, what the population will accept, what people want, what mm -hmm. they're willing to sacrifice, their values and preferences. And so those people may have different policy solutions than people who are more on the theoretical, mathematical side of modeling outbreaks and what would work. Um, we need to consider that policy is, is science plus values plus what can actually be achieved in the real world. It's mm. all these buckets. And those of us who have had a lot of experience trying to do things, like every doctor, there's nothing, I, I, I sometimes tell people, there's no better preparation to know that your grandest ambitions often don't go the way you want than being a doctor. How often <laughs> you know, have you been frustrated that you can't get something done yeah. or, or, or somebody doesn't do something you wanted them to do? Yeah. And, and you learn to meet people where they are and not where you wish they were. That's, that's exactly it. And, you know, Monica, when she was on the show, was talking about motivating you know, gay men in an HIV uh, epidemic to wear condoms. You don't tell them, hey, wear a condom, dummy, or you're gonna kill people. You you don't. That's not how you, and, and they had to learn that. Mm -hmm. And and this is, it's just harm reduction 101, you know, really. And I think in COVID, we've lost the, the idea of harm reduction. We've inflicted a lot of damage to our societal fabric through the conflict and the polarization and the fact that we just can't have rational conversation. I get a lot of my fans will message me comments or messages saying, I don't agree with everything you say, but I'm glad that you have this sort of openness to new ideas and things. That's the best compliment you could possibly get because you go, okay, I like that you don't agree because I'm not right about everything. Right. And, and and I don't think I am. Yeah. I want to be proven wrong about certain things. Like, you know, I things like flu shot, you know, I'll make a video saying, I think we should all get flu shots. But then, you know, if you really drill into the data on flu shot, well, what's the marginal benefit well, it's not huge, but the risk is small. Right. So you're trying to do the least damage as you can and right. do the most good. Right. And that's how I feel. But you have to look at that data. You have to. Yeah. Um, I think the the greatest example right now where I think um, you know, that this kind of thinking is really important is is the issue of schools. Um, and I think that's more than other things because um we we can debate when and under what circumstances should you open up restaurants and shops and bars? And, 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 and I understand people have different preferences, value things differently. I tend to think that those sorts, sorts of things that can, that can come next. But schools is something that everyone has always felt is so important. The data supports in so many studies that it is a tremendously important thing. And it's not equally important for everyone. It's not that important for the kids of rich parents. It's important for the poorest among us, for ethnic minorities, for racial minorities. They're the ones that benefit the most. And if you were to stand back and look at this whole country and look at what private schools and what charter schools and what daycares are running and what public schools are closed and where they're closed and to whom they serve, you will see inequality like you've never seen before in this country. It is almost a segregated system in the sense that rich, affluent, majority populations have much more access to schools right now than poorer, disadvantaged minority populations. That's a policy choice we're making, but I don't think we're fully aware of that, that we're making it like that. And I don't think we fully have thought about all the parts of that equation. 
are there theor- is there a theoretical reason you would slow viral spread? Yes. Does the empirical data show that that'll be a lot? I put a question mark there. I think the empirical data about whether or not kids younger than the age of 16 spread this virus tremendously is, is, is quite debatable and weak. Um, so there's this theoretical potential slowing of the virus. And what are the harms to the kids? What's gonna happen to their income, their, their life expectancy? What's gonna happen when they're at home with no one to detect child abuse or sexual abuse? What's gonna happen when they don't have access to food? And so I think this is the policy question that you have to take those two guys who were on the stage yesterday and put them out of your mind. It's not about them, it's not about any politician. It's about how do you make this choice, balance this choice, um, balance it in terms of equity and justice. And I fear that the choice we're making now is, is not in accordance with what's best for these kids. That is the conversation yeah. that progressives should be having publicly instead of tisk tisking people about, oh, you know, if you wanna open school, you're a, some kind of right-wing lunatic. Because what you just said is something I've been saying on the show as somebody who, who again, I have a ton of, um, I, I, if, we're, if we're just going on, you're a data-driven guy, yeah. I tend to be a little more emotionally driven. That's so okay. let me retranslate what you said into pure emotion. Sure. The worst way to attain social justice of any kind is to shut down schools that preferentially target the most vulnerable members of our society, whose only route out of this was education, yes. food through the schools, yes. structure, getting out of an abusive neighborhood environment, father, whatever it is, where they can be seen by someone who cares about them, who shows them some degree of connection, where they can then, every story you hear about someone rising up and bootstrapping themselves in this country had to do with a teacher or an educator, something like that. And we as a policy, based on really poor I think so. data have decided to shut down our schools and are influenced by factors that have nothing to do with the well-being of the students themselves. So in a way, it's almost a generational war. The yes. elders who are making the policy are saying, kids, stay home because you might make us sick. Because if you look at the data, you don't get that sick from this. So yes. it, it, it really upsets me, man. <laughs> I, I, I agree with, I mean, everything you've articulated, it it, it, it troubles troubles me so greatly um, that this is the way in which we are we are making this choice. And I also want to point out, not all schools are closed. Right. A lot of private schools are open. That's right. This is a choice for poor kids, the kids who need it the most. And I think public health has never done something like this. I, not to my knowledge, has ever done something like this, closing schools in, in this widespread fashion. Um, people who have boots on the ground public health experience tell me that um, sometimes you decide as a value that we're gonna value that whatever, come what may, we're gonna do our absolute best to make schools happen. When you start with that as your premise, what might you do? Mm. There's a photo that circulates of what kids are doing in Thailand. They've got plexiglass around their desks. They're wearing masks and face shields. They're doing extra precautions. They're putting money into schools to try to get this, revamping ventilation systems, maybe having classes outside. Teachers who are at high risk, perhaps they get a pass. That's acceptable. Yeah, That's absolutely. totally fine. They can get a pass. Maybe parents who make above a certain income threshold, maybe those kids, they are, they're asked to uh, be on a sort of a tiered way, a tiered fashion. Um, uh, some of the hybrid models, I think, um, well, we could talk about it all day, but some of the hybrid models, I think, have introduced some other problems, like by circulating people around so much, you might actually make the problem worse. Right, right. Um, but I, I actually, I was kind of reluctant that I, I said that about sort of using income as a factor. I think it has to be considered, but also judiciously, I think there's a downside as well. Yeah, there's always a downside, yeah. And exactly. the downside I want to articulate is that if you take the system as it is, and you see private schools still open and public schools are closed, the rich parents may pull their kids out. And what you're left with when in a year from now, two years from now, is a school system where you've lost a lot of the rich parents who are pushing to make that school good. Yeah. And that school is gonna further do wrong. Um, so I guess I, I, I misspoke a little bit. I re, I'm, I'm sorry I said that, but I guess what I, what I wanna say is um, we have to have a strong commitment to making sure these kids' schools poor kids, disadvantaged kids, they gotta run. And you gotta figure out risk mitigation. Make them run, do the best you can around it. If you do not make them run, the number of years of life you're losing for a generation is gonna be catastrophic. What you're doing to society's fabric is gonna be catastrophic. You're going to sow the seeds, I think, for political discontent for decades to come. I think it is the greatest, I think one of the greatest missteps here is that the folks on the left who are progressives, who should value these things, um, they, I fear are doing this for two reasons. One, in part because this president says it, so it's easy to do the opposite of what he says. Also in part because 
when you are rich and comfortable and you're getting your food through Uber Eats and you're sitting in your house and you can put your kids in the extra playroom that you can convert into a, 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 a sort of a, a classroom, it doesn't affect you the same way. And I think th those are at least two factors. And the third factor is general fear that this could be worse. And I think that has to be considered and that should be mitigated as much as possible. I think the empirical data do not suggest that that risk is enough to outweigh all the harm we're doing to these kids. Oh man, that was really well articulated, man. I, I agree, I agree. And, and again, you can quibble over the details of how to do it and you should. And you should. But the goal should be open the schools. Remember how, okay, do you remember what it was like when they first told you that schools were gonna close. It was like a knife in the chest. People were like, wait, what? The very fabric of reality is bending. Yeah. And wait, how long? Couple weeks, right? That's it, maybe? No, the, the rest year. of the Poof. school year. Yeah. <gasps> wait, and they're not coming back in the fall? Wait, what? And we start to, there's like a safetyism creep. Like, oh, well, okay, well, we did this. Well, uh, now we can just do this. Well, now we'll just keep them close. Oh, now we'll do it distance. Okay. And what you said, Jay said this on our show. And, you know, people will accuse, oh, well, Jay, you know, Jay interned at the Hoover Institution for a period. So he must be some, <laughs> you know, alt-right lunatic. Uh, no, he's no. a thoughtful, yeah, data-driven no. thinker who cares about people. He said on the show, Every single study has shown that wealth equals health. So why are we doing everything we can to damage the economy, damage schools? That's gonna affect the quality of life you're saved. But again, we don't have a supercomputer to show us this. It doesn't fit into a soundbite. And we can't even asking the question get you canceled. I, I, I worry that people's ability to listen and reconsider their views on this issue is deeply limited in this moment. It is, yeah. And I think, um, you know, I've had a number of people coming on my podcast. Um, they span the political spectrum. Yeah. From people who are a little bit, I think, center-right to people who are the most left you will ever see. These episodes should come out in the next, you know, as soon as we can edit them. Nice. Uh, the uh, communist episodes. The communist episodes, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the, 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 these people are all articulating the same concern. Yeah. Um, when one reflects on the things we've done about this pandemic, they are all been interventions that penalize the rich people the least and the poor people the most. Closures penalize um, the, the penalize poor people the most, um, uh, school closures absolutely the most. I also wanna pick up on one thing you said, which was um, the March to now discussion. I think in March, totally, I'm totally fine with that decision. We had no idea what was gonna happen. Right. Especially March 1st, we had no idea what would come. Yeah. In two weeks, we'll, would every hospital be drowning like New York City? Yeah. We had no idea. It was absolutely unprecedented. It's t it's okay to use the precautionary principle, say let's gonna put a pause in this and we're gonna see what where we are in two weeks yep, before. agree. Then we got into the whole year. Even that might've been acceptable. Then we're getting into the fall. And that's when I think we've had accumulating evidence um, that that might be excessive, that the balance has shifted a little bit. We do understand a lot more than we did back then. And that's what I think the error has been. Um, and I think you're right. Um, about safetyism, yeah, um, it's and a creep. It's a creep, and yeah. and Jonathan Haidt, of course, has been, I think, very good about talking about it. Yeah, um, it, it it really is sort of an irrationality because you worry about risks that are close and visible, and you forget about the risks that are further away and not visible, and so. I think he talks eloquently about all the things parents do that kind of protect their kids, put them in bubble wrap. Right. And his worry is that doing those things keeps the kids from developing resiliency, increases anxiety, suicidality, depression. What happened right now with COVID-19, I think is just another level. We're doing all these things to protect ourselves from immediate viral spread. Um, the things we're missing are, is gonna be long lasting damage to a generation of kids in, in deep ways, uh, both for their physical health, for their economic prosperity, uh, for economic justice, for upward mobility, um, even for mental health and anxiety. I worry we're gonna have unintended consequences on so many domains. You know, I, I, I actually think The Coddling of the American Mind, his book was a prophecy about what would happen in, in a situation like this, and it's all come true. It's all come true. Everything yeah. that he said, we've created this fragile generation that's powered by social media, that's overparented and overprotected against risks people can see and overestimate, like kidnapping. Yes. Uh, you know, things that come on Dateline. A date yeah, line, date right. line, 60 exactly. minutes. You're just constantly reminded of these irrational fears and you forget the kids need to go and play and have normal experiences. Take risks. Take risks. That's what it means to be a human being. I, and life is not a bubble wrap safety thing. It's a choices we make in pursuit of you know some values and some goals that we all- Some values we yeah. care about, you could reduce that into life is to be lived. Yeah. 
not to be fearing death every second. And look, I struggle with it as a dad. Both my kids are in this ninja camp where they just get thrown into this thing with other kids. They're filthy running around doing stuff. What are they doing? These obstacle courses like American Gladiator. My daughter, who's this tiny little nine-year-old, weighs like 40 pounds, like she's a little pipsqueak, comes back and she's like, man, I really hurt my wrist doing this thing. And I'm like, this is just what I need. She's gonna break her wrist <laughs> in this thing. I'm gonna have to take her to the ER. You know, it's gonna be a mess. I have this high deductible plan. What if we get COVID while we're there? There's all going through my head. Sure. And in an instant, and then I'm like looking at her and I'm like, so do you wanna stop doing this? And she's like, no, it's awesome. I Today I climbed a rope up to the top. And I'm like, that's it. That's the decision. She's taking risks. She's becoming anti-fragile. The little bit of injury she got has made her actually, it's not even resilience. It's more adaptable to future injury. It's not that she's resisting change, she's growing stronger to future challenges in a way that that Hyde talks about is anti-fragility. And for me, you know, and, and something you said that I think I wanna get back to real quick is, Jay talked about this too. Rich people, people that are, you know, even, even you and me, do you consider yourself rich? I don't. <laughs> but I'm, you know. I'm headed that direction, exactly, I'm not there yet. <laughs> exactly, everyone thinks they're middle class, yeah. right? So. I have, this has been great. Yeah. The kids are at home on Zoom. We have high-speed internet. They each have their own room to do their stuff. I have an assistant to help out with my stuff. I get to do my thing remotely. Oh, it's the best. I am an elite in the Zoomocracy. Yeah, I think uh, Jay Bhattacharya has used that term, and I think he has a point, which is, and it's related to the Twitter point, I think, which is that people who have had an oversized role in shaping the narrative and discussion of COVID-19 are people who are largely insulated from the challenges of COVID-19. Mm. We can do my, I can do most of my work by Zoom, but you know, I'm gonna leave here soon, I'm gonna go to clinic, and actually I'm physically going in clinic, but that's not true of many, some doctors have actually converted all their clinics to Zoom to further mitigate their risk. Um, and, 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 and in addition to that, people are at home doing their entire work from, from electronically. Uh, the Bay Area has announced that some of these jobs are never gonna be in person again. You can work wherever you want. Um, housing value in the peninsula is exploding and housing value in the city is plummeting while people move to live more comfortably. Um, Uber Eats is running. Uh, uh, Amazon Prime is running. Um, all the services you need to buy whatever you want, get food in your house. I see doctors posting long threads about how their Uber Eats from, I don't know, some fancy restaurant was delayed. And I was like, <laughs> oh God, do you understand what's going on? People are really suffering. Yeah. They're suffering because people live paycheck to paycheck. People who have to work in person, who's gonna watch their kids when they're at home? Is their grandma gonna be brought in? What, I mean, you are pushing on society in a way that you have never pushed on before, that people who are comfortable and have money and can avoid these challenges, they're not paying much price at all. They may be not getting a haircut like me. Um, you know, that's the extent of my suffering. <laughs> Um, but people, there are people who are really suffering. They don't know where the money's gonna come from. They, that, that stimulus paycheck was a pittance compared to what they really need. Um, and, and the policies are gonna deprive their kids of an opportunity more than they're gonna deprive uh, the kids of academics. Um, so I think it, it we, you know, somebody comes on my podcast in a future episode, I'm gonna steal a line he says, because he said it best. He said, if you were to stand back and you were to ask, what's the set of policies I should make for COVID-19 that will help poor and disadvantaged people who are dying predominantly of the virus? And what are the policies that will keep rich people comfortable and lower their risk of contracting the virus? He says, everything we're doing now would be in that bucket of keeping rich people comfortable. Um, they can be testing as long as I make sure my Uber Eats driver doesn't have COVID so it doesn't spread it to me. Mm -hmm. um, but we're not gonna do the things to actually mitigate uh, risk for, for people who are vulnerable. And so, you know, that's what he comes on and says, so I'm stealing his line, uh, Steph it. Burrell, but uh, you'll enjoy his episode. Um, That's exciting. But yeah, I think there's a lot of truth to that, that the people on social media, and to make the final point, the people on social media, on Twitter, who are so easy to say we ought to do X, Y, and Z, um, they may themselves be removed from the penalties of X, Y, and Z. Um, uh, and I think that's a challenge. And you know what I think, what I find is so interesting is the, the faction of the political spectrum that's supposed to advocate for poor yeah. and justice are the ones that are loudly advocating the opposite in this case. And, and it's the... Actually, and, and, and I, wor I actually think that people are so surprised when so-and-so gets elected. Well, when this is what's happening on the ground level, and there's a guy in the White House saying, you know what, this whole thing's a hoax, everything's gonna be fine, open the schools, do all that. What they're hearing is, okay, this guy's actually hearing our struggle, Yeah. right? And, and I think that that's a dangerous thing in the sense that it's a hoax and open the schools. 
Those don't have to be the same Doesn't, bucket, no, right? No, exactly. Right. It's a serious threat. It's really doing damage, but it's still on the balance better to open schools. No, someone needs to say that. I, that, guess, I guess we're saying that right we're now. Saying now. We're saying it now. And, right and now. I, but and that's, put, yeah. And the funny thing is I've been saying that and this is what happens in comments when yeah. I say that. People are like, hell yeah, this thing's a lie. I know, Or I know. they're like, you are gonna murder people. This thing is a catastrophe. How dare you? You're gonna kill teachers. What about grandpa? And it's like that. You have to make the, Iran Ben David said it on the show, you have to make value decisions every day. Yeah. We get in our car, there's a risk. There's a risk, But yeah. we know the reward of being in the car outweighs the risk. At least that's our calculation. It may not always, right? Otherwise we could just dis disappear all transportation. Right. But I think you're right that, I mean, what you're arguing is we have to seize the middle. We yeah. have to seize the middle. And the reason we have to seize the middle on this issue is that it is an issue that we all, we we all, all can, agree. we all agree on. Yeah. And, and, the, and the worry is that I think the particular flavor of politician that sees the moment that, as you point out, and I think I agree with you actually, you know, I grew up in Northwest Indiana. And so I have, I think, a tremendous affinity for middle America yeah. and, and what, what it's like in some of these communities. Um, and, and I think um, people here, that that you hear you understand my struggles you understand what i'm dealing with they hear that and 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 this and you know some politicians have taken advantage of that in the moment but there will someday be a politician that's worse than the politician you have now yeah i think many of us 20 years ago we thought we had we had already seen some bad politicians yeah. but we didn't know what we were in for yeah. 20 years from now you may see politicians that make make you wish you were living in 2020 yeah. and that's what i fear more than anything else politicians who offer you false promises demonize ethnic and racial minorities, they triumph when people have been starved of capital, when their kids' opportunity is taken away, when the weak and the poorest are downtrodden. They thrive under those circumstances. And we, the progressive side, we are sowing the seeds for their triumph years from now. I'm deeply fearful of that potential long-term outcome. And I think we have to do everything we can. When, when schools do reopen, we gotta get rid of the, gotta get rid of the summer. The school day's gotta be the same day as your work day. We can't, none of this school ends at two o'clock. Yeah. We have to commit education. This is not an agrarian economy anymore. Yeah. We don't need these three months so the kids can be in the fields working or whatever it was, the initial impetus for it. It makes no sense. Schools is a public commodity to take children and give them options. It has to run year round, has to be proper hours, and you gotta pay for that. And we have to all pay for that. And so it, hopefully it's an opportunity to take it and do something really good. But I worry that there's some despot and some tyrant out there who will seize it to do something really bad i i can't think of a better way to end the, the podcast i mean that was absolutely spot on inspiring that's how we should be talking about this stuff especially you know uh um, you know especially in a time when we're in a political season it's like well yeah. let's be honest what do we all want yeah forget about your politics here what what, what what do we actually want we want people to thrive as much as we can without a whole bunch of inequity. Yes. Because nobody likes it. Nobody, even I think even the very rich, yeah. the least empathic rich person does not want. They don't want that. Because it's, it's a danger. It's, it's, it's a threat to it's them too. It's a threat too. to them. Yes, yeah. it can, it can, it can, it'll break. The system will break. You Absolutely. can only push it so much and you can't push it any further. But I don't. I think they actually don't want it. They, we yeah. want people to have opportunity to yeah. work yeah. And, and make money and have better lives for their kids. Um, even if, while people do, some people want to retain the capital that's been given to them by their ancestors. Right, uh, right, right. And some of us on the <laughs> I think that some of the capital should be pushed away. Um, right, right. Uh, so that's a philosophical value disagreement. Um, but I think we all agree. And I think you're right. We have to seize the middle on this issue. There is a middle ground. You take COVID seriously. You value vaccines. You know it's not a hoax. You also think that on balance, maybe the calculus says we got to do the best we can to mitigate risk and get these schools going. Exactly. And that's a reasonable position that I think we have to come to. I call it the alt-middle. The alt-middle. Yeah, good. exactly. I'm going to start a, a blog you know, uh, 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 Dark Bart. <laughs> Man, Vinay Prasad, dude, what a, it's always a joy. I'm so glad I just, I just hit you up and was like, hey, would you mind coming by? It's just such a great discussion, man. Um, you guys just share the thing. I have nothing else to say. If you wanna become a supporter, we usually go deeper for supporters, you and me, we have these conversations. And the reason I talk about supporters actually is this thing where they subscribe. Uh, it's like four ninety nine on YouTube or Facebook, or you can PayPal. I, I don't care. The reason it's not that I'm pitching you for money. It's that the fun, we talked, we started the podcast with this thing. The fundamental problem with how we behave is our incentives are jacked up based on money. Social media incentives are generate advertising clicks. So whatever clickbait headline I make, whatever controversy I want to stir up, I get more points. Mm -hmm. Take a political stance, I get more points. Mm -hmm. But what if 
the formula was different, where people are paying you for the content because they appreciate the content. Well, yeah. then you do the right thing for that's authentic to you. And if they wanna buy that, that's great. Well, it turns out there's a bunch of people who wanna buy that. Yeah. So let's sell authenticity in ourselves instead of clicks to advertisers. So that's my pitch. I love you guys. Uh, thanks, Vinay. Thanks, and Vidal. oh, check out Plenary Session. That's Vinay's <laughs> podcast. I'm gonna be on that too. And he's gonna have great, He's it's a great <laughs> podcast. Definitely subscribe to it. And we out, peace. Hey, it's Dr. Z. Thanks for getting through the whole episode. That's a huge accomplishment. <laughs> and so at this point, I just gotta ask you for a few favors because it just helps us so much if you leave a review on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe. It, it just really helps the algorithm to get this message out to others. The second thing is email me, hello at zdogmd.com. I get all these emails personally. I can't respond to them all, but I need to hear your voice because especially on podcast, we don't have a comment section. And I wanna hear how this episode affected you, what you'd like to hear in the future, what you think we got wrong, what we think we got right, anything, anything, or just say hi. So that's really powerful. And the third thing is, Financially, it helps us a lot to support the show in any way you can. And if you go to zdogmd.com forward slash supporters, you can join our supporter tribe on your favorite platform, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, wherever. What that will get you on those platforms is live shows with me that are exclusive for supporters and access to our Zoom meetings where we talk about awakening realization and we share with each other our own experience. It's a powerful group effect. It's a community, really. And we support and love each other and share, again, through our own experience, how we're waking up. So, and that that ripples out into systems, into transforming healthcare and education and government. So it st really starts with us. So join us there if you can. Again, zdogmd.com forward slash supporters. And I'm so grateful to have you with us.